Hey-ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 29 of our podcast. Thank you for joining us. We're so pleased to have listeners from all over the world. I know. Our brilliant listeners are everywhere, and we hope you, wherever you are, you're having a historically tutorific day. Yes, and if you're new here, it is best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We've had such an amazing time researching it and working on it. We can't wait to share this new episode with you. Enjoying the fabulous Facebook community. Yes, please do. We've got hundreds... Thousands. Thousands of listeners on that page now. All our gratitude for taking this journey with us. In our last episode, Philomena had her hands full with the distraught Constance. But now Constance is off to see Rutland and ask him to make an introduction to George Wyatt. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 29. Cecil House, in which Constance receives an unexpected education. Constance felt awed waiting for Rutland in the library of Cecil House. First, she could not believe that she knew an earl so well as to boldly ask a favor, and secondly, it was she who always did a favor for him. Philomena had sent word that Sir George Wyatt, Thomas Wyatt the younger son, was in London that very day, and if an introduction could be made, there might be the scantiest of chances that through him they could find something about the relic. Constance thought of Rutland in a moment. The two young gentlemen were certain to be acquainted. Mistress Constance, Rutland shouted as he thundered in, obviously just from the hunt. He seemed about to pound her on the back, as if she were one of his fellows, but he checked himself. Have you brought me good news? Has my lady love returned? Not yet, my lord, and so you will cry at least a hundred more tears into your claret. I came to give you back the book you lent. She stretched out the tragical history of Romeus and Juliet to him. What did that Romeus know of love? Rutland declared, taking the volume. His love was a morsel, mine is a feast. I wish I were a stag, flaunting my antlers past Mistress St. John's country door. Are you here, Mistress, hoping to hear morsels of young Herbert? Has this book not put you in the mind of courtship? How gallant young Herbert was for you, showing his fists in the privy garden. I should have jumped to it myself if Herbert had not beaten me. Come to visit me more often, I have missed your little face. You must take the Chaucer, though he can be saucy. I will try not to blush. And yet blushes must suit you. Do you blush for Sir Fists? If you wish me to carry letters between you, I can help. I know what a man wants to hear. Rutland spoke in the high voice of a simpering girl. Dear sir, how I think of you, how I wish I were in your strong embrace, even now. I do not speak like that. You are ever more moderate. I am not moderate. When did you last fling yourself on the winds of Eros? I'm hungry. Someone should bring food. Rutland collapsed down onto a chair. I am not moderate. I have some sense, and do not threaten death over a person I have barely spoken to. Constance quipped. Rutland's mouth dropped open. You doubt the truth of my love? Not in the least. I only doubt it has anything to do with the object. Are those your true thoughts? You think me a fool? Are not all men in love fools? Do not dodge with a courtier's answer, Rutland said. You dissemble. It is a little treason against me. Indeed not. And you cannot rate my answer. 
I do not know, love. Come, you do not mean that. You have guided me to Thomas Wyatt and helped me choose the right words to impress my lady. You have an ear for love, mistress, though love has not struck you. You must dream. I do, admitted Constance. Ha! Of young Herbert and his shapely leg. I decline to judge Master Herbert's figure. He is a fine lad. Tush, tush, mistress. I know your way. You always hide behind the trite. Sit down here. He pulled up a bench for her. And so, do you dislike Herbert? She could not think of Herbert. If she would marry, it would be Charles, and she would die still a virgin. You misread me, sir. It is no fault with Herbert, but with me. Hmm, I have known ladies of your sort, cruel, icy, who hold themselves apart from men. You are unfair. I long, I, I long for... I'm not sure. He was confusing her with his aggressive yet insulting tenderness. I cannot think the thoughts, yet my modesty has a value, and I tell you, I have never kissed a man. Rutland looked as if an arrow had flown from her mouth and pierced his gut. That is one of the greatest wrongs I have ever heard. You wrong all men. Constance had to laugh. No, not at all. I will tell you what it is. I lived in the country, and my aunt oversaw everything. If truth be told, I am a rustic. I will do you as good a turn as you have done me, Rutland said. I will school you in kissing. A lady should be demure, but Herbert might mistake your fear for indifference. A little instruction might be useful, Constance reasoned. Let us begin slowly. First, lip my cheek as you might lip your aunt. Rutland took up a carpet that lay on the floor and wrapped it around his shoulders, pulling it over the top of his head. He sat down on the bench next to Constance, breathing in the wheezing manner of an old woman. He pointed to his cheek, and Constance kissed it. He was a funny boy. He commended, sharp and cold like a woodpecker at a tree. Now we shall progress. He flung off his headdress, and leaning in close and taking Constance's chin in his hand, he asked, Do you want to try? Indeed, Constance said before she had time to catch herself, and she felt his mouth press softly against hers. The texture of his lips was chapped and warm. He moved away a tiny bit, but when he spoke, his mouth brushed hers. That kiss was a salutation between lips, he said. She looked into his eyes, her mind a wonderful blank. Now will you kiss me? She did as commanded, leaned in and ran her lips against his, her eyelashes brushing his cheek. It was sweet. And before she could check herself, she added a little punctuation kiss at the end. You are a quick student, but there are other kisses, more serious ones. Would you like to learn? He was looking into her eyes so intently. She felt her stomach flop, and she moved away from him. Not today, perhaps. Then she saw him laugh, and he sat back from her. You are right. You and young Herbert will not be at it any time soon. You need not rush yourself. Constance saw he wanted to hurt her with his words, and she was hurt, but she rallied. Sir, I had almost forgotten why I dared to come visit you. I would like you to take me to see Sir George Wyatt. Rutland prickled. You wish to try your kissing out on that oaf because he bears the name Wyatt? He is nothing like the poet, I assure you. He stood and shook himself. His lip curled unpleasantly. Constance found her feet as well. You wrong me. I have not the sliver of a thought about Master Wyatt. You think his rudeness honesty? An engaging affectation? Something to contradict your own secrets, mistress? 
How have I offended that you raise your voice to me and assume such things? I ask a simple favour that has nothing to do with your mean insinuations. I am not your friend. You seek only to use me. Your sole goal is to enlist me to help you bed Thomason, and you accuse me of using you? You help me only to curry the indebted favour of myself, an earl. I wish nothing so much as to be out of your favour, sir. You think I enjoy being a page to your absurd mating calls, a wet nurse to your infantile delusion of love for Thomason St. John, the rudest girl in all of London, who looks lower on me than the dog who pissed on her favourite dress? You are so full of yourself, you cannot see out of your own eye sockets. You insult me, mistress. You insult me, sir. For a moment she thought he would draw his sword. Instead, she found herself in his embrace. Releasing herself, she stood apart. He said, I beg your pardon. I am unpractised in my friendships with the ladies. I want to serve you as you have served me. Please allow me to make the introduction to Master Wyatt. Men were a quagmire, and as Rutland slumped before her with his sweet forgive-me face, a wave broke over her, something that she had felt before in the onslaught of strong emotion, the want of sleep. Mistress, you need refreshment. As they sat together drinking watered wine, Rutland looked to take such interest in her that she felt shy. She told a slight tale about the box found at the inn, and the desire to return it to Master George Wyatt. Thankfully, the Earl of Rutland was in the mood to appease. Poor Constance, isn't everyone's favorite time to make a bad decision right after they've had some discombobulating emotional upheaval? You mean like when your fiancé decides he wants to have a chaste marriage, flee the country, and take religious orders and take you with him to be a nun? <laughs> yes. I think that a little makes someone a little off-center? Yes, exactly that. And Constance's excuse to visit Rutland, it's a little flimsy. Returning a book, I think that's a pretty good reason. But... In the digital age, it's just not an excuse you can use anymore. No, because you land on Kindle. And my Kindle just, it doesn't smell as good as a book. No. And I love to look at my favorite books. And also, sometimes when I look at a book, I remember reading a certain book when this or that happened. Yes, where you were, where you were, and all that stuff. But at this time period, books are so very expensive. It's just, even at Stoner House, Constance doesn't have the kind of library that Mildred Cecil does. And as we've talked about, Mildred Cecil has an amazing library. So Rutland has access to this incredible library. And Constance is returning this tragical history of Romeus and Juliet, and I'm saying Ramius. It's not a mistake. I often make pronunciation <laughs> mistakes. I'm very guilty, but this is not one of them. Because Shakespeare, while a genius, was not able to write Romeo and Juliet when he was only one year old. <laughs> yes, because Shakespeare was born in 1564. And our story takes place in 1565. So we're a little early for him. So Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet was taken from Arthur Brooke's 3,020-line poem, The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet. But it didn't originate with Brooke either. No, it was an old European folktale, and it had been refined a few times, even at that point. And most people think that Brooke's poem was taken from a reworking of the folktale into more of a story form by Matteo Bandello. So actually, he's a very important writer. He's not an English language writer, which is why I think we don't know very much about him. But he was very influential in this time period. Yeah, but you think about how many Italian writers we do know. Dante, 
Petrarch. Yes. You know, there's actually a lot of Italian writers. It's just maybe he just hasn't gotten the good PR yet. So that's our next our next job. Yes. Is to put B- Matteo Bandello on the map. <laughs> he was born in Milan, and he did his writing and publishing in France, where he was a bishop. He wrote 214 stories that were published, and some of them were reworkings of even older folk tales. Yes, and the, the stories were very popular, and they provide the inspiration for some of Shakespeare's most famous plays, not only Romeo and Juliet, but also Much Ado About Nothing and The Twelfth Night. It just reiterates how strange it is that people think Shakespeare must have gone to Verona for inspiration, or why Shakespeare didn't write his plays because he didn't travel. It, it's because this is a folktale set in Verona. It's that's the story. It's not as if Shakespeare thought to himself, "Where should I set warring families?" I know, Verona. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, you don't have to think about where you're gonna set the story of Davy Crockett. Exactly. You know? yeah. <laughs> There's not much choice. It's just where the folktale happens. Yes, and Romeo or Romeus and Juliet had so many versions in Europe during the 15th and 16th century. But it is Brooke's poem that is the first English version we know of. His 3,000 plus line poem. I know, it's a long poem. But I guess you had more time to read long poems in the, in the Tudor period. You had less TV to watch, less <laughs> yeah. Netflix to catch up on. But this poem was published in 1562. It was Brooke, not Matteo, I just call him by his first name, (laughs) who added the character of the nurse. And then Shakespeare kept her. But that just shows how the story evolved. He, you know, it was made from a folktale into a more serious story. Mm -hmm. And then Brooke invented the character of the nurse. And then Shakespeare took it. You know, it's very evolving. Right. And, you know, there wasn't the sense of plagiarism that we have now. There was no issue with that. I think sometimes people feel a little disappointed when they find out that Shakespeare didn't originate the stories of his plays. Mm. But uh, there wasn't a premium on that. Plot was not the premium at the time, you know. And we we still do that. We we love retellings. Yes, we love a new version of Sherlock Holmes. We love a new version of Beauty and the Beast. Right, or... You know, you know, yeah, Clueless, right? Clueless. Which is a retelling of Emma. Yes. So we we still do that, and we and my gosh, all we do now is reboot. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you hear people say, "Isn't it about time for a reboot?" We enjoy those stories. Well, I think also there's an element of enjoying to see how it's going to be rebooted and whether it compares to the original, whether it compares to this person playing that character or that person playing that character. So there's some people kind of like to compare, and I'm sure they liked to compare, you know, Shakespeare's version of Romeo and Juliet and and Arthur Brooke's poem. And maybe there were some people who were like, Shakespeare's version is terrible. Arthur Arthur Brooke's is much better. The poem is always better. (laughs) Yeah, the The original poem. Shakespeare is just so light. It's it's such like, you know, mass produced. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure those conversations happen. And, you know, stories keep changing bit by bit to reflect current trends and ways of thinking. And this was true in the 16th century, too. This isn't something that's just 
you know, um, that just happens in the modern age. Versions of Romeo and Juliet were very popular for two generations before Shakespeare, and five novellas telling the tale appeared 30 years before the play. It's even more than versions of, I don't know, Spider-Man, <laughs> you know, where you've got this character and you just, yeah, you have him in all these different universes, you know? And I think they loved the story of this tragical history. and. But these novellas were no masterpieces. No, and it's Shakespeare's use of language that makes Romeo and Juliet a masterpiece. And also the morality, the more complex morality, because he changes that quite a bit from the way it is in the novellas. The novellas are more what I would call almost a cautionary tale. It really emphasizes how Romeo and Juliet are so wrong and misguided to go against their family. And it could be read, and it probably was read at the time, that they have to die because they're disobedient. And I'm sure there were people who felt that Shakespeare's retelling was terrible because it was going to encourage young people to do bad things, you know? I mean... And it's so amoral because at the end, the families are united. Right, so something... No, I don't want to say good because it's these two young people are dead, but something, but it resolves itself in the end. Yes. Yeah. They had simplistic actions that had foreseeable results. In kind of inevitable results, like in a horror movie when where a character walks off by themselves and you think, oh my God, that character is going to die. It's so clear. But to me, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, it's, you know, it's about the folly of youth and being convinced that you yourself are right about everything. I mean, it, but it's about sexual lust, mm-hmm. but he doesn't condemn it. He sort of thinks it's, it. I don't know, he sort of presents it as something natural in a way. Yes. I mean, it, it, it's destructive, but it is kind of natural. And I mean, Romeo is swearing his undying love for Rosalind one second and in love with Juliet the next, but Juliet is also going to be forced to marry somebody when she's really too young, too young to do that and yes. uh, to make a marriage that she doesn't want to make. So they're both in a, in, a, in a state of high emotion when they meet. And really every decision they make, is it's just so misguided from beginning to end. And then there's just terrible circumstances like the fact that, you know, Friar Lawrence can't get the message yes. to, to Romeo because of the plague. Yes. So there's all these other things that get in the way. It could be resolved. You feel like it could actually be okay and their families could learn to accept the relationship, but then all these other things happen. But isn't that also Pyramus and Thisbe? Yes. Because it's the same it's the same idea that the lovers meet and one thinks one is dead and the and kills themselves and then they're not dead. Yes. Yeah. So I mean again, this is not this doesn't spring from Shakespeare's brain. It's something that a lot of authors of the time have investigated, but... And the audience would have recognized And the audience would have recognized that. You know, when Juliet is taking the potion, kind of like a horror movie now, maybe they're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. You know, don't, what are you doing? Can't you see? Constance has obviously been incredibly well-educated, but she hasn't read this kind of work before. Um, this is something that's happening because of her, because of her relationship with Rutland. He's giving her these books. He's sort of, he's sort of educating her in this new way, and he's also educating her in, you know, the kissing thing is 
a little bit of a sentimental education or it's just I mean it's fun and then it it kind of goes goes wrong but yes. you also feel like if Constance wasn't in this state about Charles she would probably wouldn't go along with this no she's in, thing either so just like with Romeo and Juliet because all these things are happening to Constance she's kind of available I don't want to say available but she's kind of open to to, to different things yes yeah that doesn't mean that everybody could read Romeus and Juliet. Some people would have to wait to see it in the theater because while literacy improves a lot during the Elizabethan era, it's it's still quite low. Maybe it's around 30% for men and 10% of women are able to read and read and write if we consider literacy reading and writing. And many people could not even write their own names. So maybe for some of the people who were going to see Romeo and Juliet when Shakespeare presented it, it was a new story because some of them would have been illiterate. But that's true. But I wonder if it, it would have been made it into like, you know, the punch the of folklore, Judy, yeah. the folklore, the but they de- But they definitely might not have, writ- have read Arthur Brooks' poem and been able to compare no. Shakespeare's version to Arthur Brooks' version. That would have been a very small amount of his, audience. Of, of his audience. Yeah, that's true. And of course, you know, 30% of men and 10% of women are able to read. But reading is not the same as critically considering what you've read. Reading itself is just getting through the words. It's not comprehension. And when you went to school as a very young person, very young person, not just the normal young people that I like to speak (laughs) about, but, you know, younger than seven, you weren't taught reading, writing, and arithmetic right away. You were taught to count. Because counting was the most important thing. But if you did well with counting, then you would move on to reading. And then if that went well, you could move on to math. I mean, it's very sad for your education to be disrupted when you're four and a half years old because you didn't catch right on for some reason. Right, or you got distracted, which, my gosh, don't four-year-olds get distracted all the time. They weren't trying to get everyone there. You would could just be, you just wouldn't continue. But if you had some money, of course, you could get some help, and then you could continue forward. But if you had some money, if you were a parent with money, maybe you had the ambition for your child to do a different job than you had done. Because truthfully, for most of the population of England at this time, being really really good at reading and writing was just not necessary. No. As an artisan, as a, you know, as a guild member, as somebody who worked with their hands, as you a could dairy farmer, right, as a you could weaver, do you could do very well. You could do well financially and you really didn't need to learn to read and write. So if if your parents were willing to put money into your education like that, they had an ambition for you to enter a different field, like the clergy, being a teacher yourself, maybe entering the law. And also you might never learned to write. You could read and do math, but you weren't necessarily taught to write. That if you finished this very early schooling and you went on to grammar school, which of course was boys, Mm -hmm. from, you know, they could be between the ages of seven and nine, what you learned was based around the classics, which was Latin, Greek, and maybe Hebrew. And Greek and Roman literature with a bit of something modern like Erasmus thrown in for that keen-to-read nine-year-old who wants to read Erasmus. <laughs> exactly. And it seems like weirdly too little. Like, first you're just taught to 
count and then suddenly when you're you know nine it's time to read Erasmus but um, it seems like weirdly too little and then too much. If you're on a certain track people went to Cambridge at 12. Yeah. No, that's and they went into the court, the inns of court at 15. So actually, if you were going to go on this track, you had to get going pretty early. And, and the hours seemed like too much as well. So classes began at 6 a.m. and finished for lunch at 11 a.m. The afternoon lessons began at 1 p.m. And the day finished at 4 or 5 p.m. So again, to go to our earlier point, if, if, you're, if you have your parent who agrees to send you to one of these grammar schools, you are not getting an apprenticeship to work to, to learn a trade you're not helping on the farm you're not you know going to work in your father's workshop beyond maybe a couple of hours here and there you're not being trained for one of those trades you're being trained for medicine law the clergy or education and there's lots of memorization but the teachers did have periods of misrule <laughs> which is what we would have now called Reset, but I like misrule better. It's so, so fun. It's a period of misrule, and then all the students could blow off steam. They needed to. They <laughs> needed to, and they went to school all the time. They also went to school Saturday mornings. Right. Again, they couldn't help in the workshop or the farm. And on Sunday, you would go to church, and then you weren't really supposed to do anything. It was the Sabbath. So for the school for the youngest children, there wasn't really an expectation that the schoolmasters would have a degree because it was very basic reading and math and, and writing. But for the grammar schools, there was an expectation that the teachers should have attended university. And this is the early tutor period. There became a great interest in literacy because of... Religion. And humanism. Right. Humanism. And so the Catholic Church is really at a crossroads at this point. The Catholic Church Mass is in Latin, which... Of course, many f people found and still find very beautiful. But as we've said with Protestantism, you were expected to be able to read the Bible for yourself. You were supposed to have a direct conversation. You were supposed to have a direct line between yourself and God. You weren't supposed to be hearing the word through a priest. Right. So these very famous Catholics, Erasmus, Thomas More, and others, introduced a humanist way of thinking into the world. And they would say that that was a way of thinking that was not based on fear and superstition and authority, but on grammar and rhetoric, fixing discussions and securing the presentation of ideas and creating an accessible to all body of knowledge. Gaining this body of knowledge became a way to advance in society. You'd have this kind of shared knowledge, and of course you'd have this shared language of Latin. And it's no wonder someone like Thomas Cromwell supported these ideas. They allowed him to rise in social status. His father, as far as I know, was a butcher, and clearly he must have been one of those students who excelled at the petty school and went on to grammar school and... There was support of that. That's right. And then he he worked for Wolsey, who was a priest, without actually being in the priesthood. And then through that, he was able to get close to the king. He was able to use his, his body of knowledge to ingratiate himself to powerful people and to move up through the ranks. Right. Because the thing is, I think what's important to... To reiterate is that the percentage of people who even went to a grammar school was tiny. So this idea comes up that even though these the 
Wolsey and Thomas More and Erasmus. I mean, they're all Catholics. And as you tear down, particularly the ideas of authority that supported the Catholic Church, and you replace it with ideas of questioning, considering things in a different way, you ultimately sort of come up against this idea of how do you decide what beliefs you're rejecting and what beliefs are you embracing and how do you make those things cohese together. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, for, for people who were embracing Protestantism, the Bible, the Word of God, had always been in Latin. But, you know, now it's, it, it can be read in English, and that's very confusing. Because with this new Protestant idea of thinking, you're left with this inevitable question, which is, what language does God speak? That was, I think, something that was confusing across the board, mm-hmm. like even for the good Catholics. I think for, for real Catholics, reading the Bible in English was just horrendous because it, maybe it did beg that question of what language does God speak. So I think it was very confusing for people, even the idea that they themselves would have access. Mm-hmm. These ideas combined with a humanist education and a kind of proto-capitalism, right? It really hits hard at some fundamental beliefs. And, you know, this is, as we've said in other episodes, the beginning of the early modern period. Mm -hmm. And so these ideas propel people away from feudalism, away from loyalty. Yeah, away from the loyalty specifically to your lord or doing exactly what your father had done, not learning a new trade, not going to a grammar school if you were if you showed signs that that kind of education would be worthwhile for you. So, you know, there's a lot of, we, we think of this as a very constraining period, and of course, in comparison to our own, it was. But for the people who were living through it, it was a period of a lot of intellectual questioning and turmoil and new choices that they had to make. And Henry VIII made every man in England sign the oath of supremacy that said he was the head of the church and that Anne Boleyn was queen. And then suddenly, three years later, she's beheaded. So it was, my word of the day, discombobulating for the regular, you know, Henry VIII actually addresses, you know, obviously not every person, every man in England, but, you know, the populace with this edict. And then three years later, it's nothing. Right, and the queen is dead. And, and the queen they, is dead. Right. And it's, and everyone's supposed to carry on have, believing in him. Yes. And believing in his, you know, consistency as a king. And, and he's also gotten rid of the pope, which for so many people was the fact that he questioned that he could have his own authority was earth-shattering for a lot of people. So, you know, and they... They've, they've lost their allegiance to the Pope. They've lost their favorite feast days and things that they held on to, that they believed in, that they'd been educated with, that were things that were important to them. And so it's not surprising that tensions were very high at this period. So it, it's kind of like, I think that part of the reason why people were open to Luther's ideas were because a lot of the intellectuals of the time had been educated in in this humanist tradition, so they were kind of up for questioning. This throws these previously unquestionable ideas about God into question, and actually during Elizabeth's reign, we see that some people are accused of actual atheism. Which is just unbelievable if you think 
that Henry VII and the beginning of the Tudors, I mean, we're essentially in a feudal time. Right. And by Elizabeth's time, we are having atheists who are talking about it. Or it's not just someone quietly thinking to themselves. Right. You know? And some of these people who questioned these once immutable truths were quite close to the queen. Yes, Sir Walter Raleigh, for one. There's an idea that he ran the so-called, quote, school of night, where atheists gathered. I mean, I don't know if that's been proven, but it's interesting that it's, a, you know, it's out there. Yes, and, you know, people point to several things he said to support the idea that he was an atheist, but then there's also refutation. And also Kit Marlowe, who is also accused of being a member of the School of Night, although I think that's also unproven, he's also accused of being an atheist. Right, but I'm not surprised that they might walk that back a little because that was something that could really undermine people's faith in you as a courtier, as an attendant for the queen, as the head of a family. I don't even know what the equivalent would be right now, but maybe to say that you're an anarchist. If you're working in government and you say, I'm an anarchist, people are not going to have faith that you are gonna function well in the government. And it's it's an equivalent thing. So of course they walked it back. Then is now, I mean, being an atheist seems to have had several meanings that these men, and there were actually quite a few women who also were, were sort of questioning their faith at this time. And their atheism means not so specifically that they don't believe in God, but that they don't believe they have an immortal soul. You as a human, when you are dead, that's it. You. You're not going to heaven or hell. If you made mistakes in this life, you don't have to suffer Mm -hmm. eternal torment. Right. But Uh, you also don't get any prize if you're a good person. No, there's just nothing. That's right. And, you know, people raise this question all the time. What about the bard himself? Was Shakespeare an atheist? Well, Macbeth does say... Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. He doesn't say, and then he confesses to God and goes to heaven. But Macbeth is immoral. So maybe it's just the character of Macbeth that's an atheist and not Shakespeare. Well, that's true. No character speaks for Shakespeare, or no character that I know of. And whether he was an atheist or no, Shakespeare could think those thoughts and put them on the stage. Right, he could have a character who expressed that. But he he has to- write a character who could express that. And he has to assume that people wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't be like, why doesn't he say, and then I confess to my priest. Right. You know, he had to assume that people knew. And there are, you know, plays that the atheist tragedy is later, but not that much later. So obviously these were ideas that were roiling around with these humanist ideas. It's true. And I don't know, I would really have to do a lot of research to decide whether I thought Shakespeare was an atheist or not. But, and he may be presenting these ideas and then these characters end up badly, like Macbeth and Hamlet, who people have also you know, who also kind of questions the existence of an afterlife. So is Shakespeare putting these ideas into the mouths of people who don't don't end up well? 
I mean, it, it's it's a really hard to know what writers' um, intentions are with the characters they create, and yes. it's hard for us to understand what comments ca- Shakespeare is making on his characters because we just don't have the ideas that his his audience would have had. So right, and we don't know. I mean, how Lady Macbeth would have been greeted. You know, was she convincing? You have to stop talking about this. But would she be convincing? You know, Macbeth. Would she be like, you can do it, my king? Like, oh. Or would she be like, you can do it, my king? Right. But <laughs> and, and does if she did it like that, would would the contemporary audience go, that woman is a nightmare, and she? Or would they and, say and she's, she's going to lead him bad to a bad place? They wouldn't say she's a strong woman. I but, just don't. But think would they, they say would. she's a helpmate? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, we're back to Constance. At this point, Constance does think that there is an afterlife of the immortal soul, and she's wrestling with hers. Yes, because Constance is in her society. And she, you know, when I think one of the things that we felt very strongly about is that we didn't want her to sort of have modern values. And her value would say she should be good and she should care. And she should marry Charles Pettigrew. And she should marry Charles Pettigrew. Because she's promised to do so, and he, as the as the man in the situation, knows what's best for both of them. But she's not so sure. And now she's also going to be confused about Rutland. Yes. <laughs> she's off to Barnard Inn, where she'll meet some even more unruly young men. So join us next time to see what terrible mess Constance gets into. Leave us a comment on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. We love hearing from you. So join us next time for more Time's Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.